welcome to the Enter Player 2 podcast. I'm Nicole McFall and I'm joined by Player 2, Carl Murray. We discuss anything and everything about the world of games. Our show features deep dive discussions where we answer the questions that have all been on our minds, as well as that, we're going to go head to head in the Game of the Week showdown. This week, the revival of pixel art games. Do games need a big budget to be successful? Before we get into our main discussion, we are going to give a brief overview about the history of pixel art games. This is needed for a better understanding on today's deep dive. To get a better understanding of pixel art games, we need to go back to the beginning. From 1972 to 1983, the early years of pixel art were a bit rough due to technological restrictions and the general lack of experience most developers had with games in motion. This had mainly led to extremely simple blocks attempting to resemble objects and was heavily dependent on the imaginations of players to fill in the blanks. Perhaps one of the most iconic games to mention would be that of Pong. Notable users of this style was the Magnavox Odyssey, ColecoVision and the Atari 2600. Moving into the 8-bit era from 1983 to 1987. Though still limited in a technological sense, it was clear that developers had grown more ambitious in their attempts at engaging their audience with recognisable characters. This led to appealing game worlds with background details, hidden areas and limited attempts at replicating cinematic cutscenes reminiscent of films. The shortcuts taken to create these stories led to the development of many modern gaming stories. Notable users of this style included the NES, the Sega Master System and the Game Boy. From the 8-bit era comes the 16-bit era, 1987 to 1993. When arcades had reached their peak, console graphics had advanced to the point that they could replicate what the arcades had. The game creators had refined pixel art to the point that they felt comfortable to venture away from their arcade origins, and created their own distinct game worlds, which can hold up to games released currently today. Some games even attempted to blend pixel art with early renditions of 3D. Notable users of this style, the SNES, Sega Genesis, and Neo Geo. The slowdown for the pixel art came between 1993 to 2006. As consoles like the PlayStation and Nintendo 64 worked to advance the concept of using 3D models to represent characters, pixel art began to slowly fall from popularity. From this point on, pixel art didn't advance very much, with most games simply refining art from previous generations as opposed to creating a whole new style for themselves. There were a few stubborn companies who refused to utilise 3D until it was perfected, but those companies had lost prominence in the industry because of that choice. Notable users of this style included the Sega Dreamcast and the Game Boy Advance. Now that we understand the beginning of pixel art games, it has brought us to the modern day, from 2006 to the present day. Despite 3D establishing its dominance in game presentation, pixel art still persists albeit in a smaller amount than its heyday. Nowadays, pixel art has been mainly relegated to handheld consoles and indie games that go for a retro style. Despite its diminishing presence, pixel art is still evolving, having worlds that rival and even surpass their polygonal counterparts. Notable users of this style include PC, Xbox One, PS4, Nintendo DS and 3DS, and the Nintendo Switch. The development of pixel art has always been a captivating prospect, Though starting as a workaround for technical limitations, it was utilised and refined to the point that it was ubiquitous in gaming culture. The highs and lows it faced eventually resulted in developers using pixel art as an artistic choice instead of a shortcut for primitive tech. Is it simply a matter of nostalgia, or is there something inherently appealing about pixel art that allows it to remain timeless? Carl, what is your thoughts on this? I really enjoyed the narration and research we did about the history of pixel art. To answer your question though, I believe the pixel art is not a form of nostalgia. 
as the hardware improved, so did the graphics. We saw game developers moving from 2D 8-bit models into 3D low-poly models. These steps were necessary in the evolution of gaming. However, 2D 8-bit and 16-bit games have never been forgotten. You were talking about the evolution of games there, and I understand that moving from 2D to 3D was completely necessary to get us where we are today. But how do you think that pixel art games have maintained that aspect of being timeless whilst all of this change is going on with the massive immersive worlds that we've been experiencing in the likes of the Xbox One, the PS4, the PC, and many of the Nintendo consoles that have been made available? The answer is the hardware. We saw consoles improved over the late 90s to where we are now, and in the background pixel art games were doing the exact same. That improvement in the hardware allowed developers more freedom and helped with the evolution of 8-bit in the pixel art. They are not limited in terms of colour schemes as they have now a whole palette to work with. If the early SNES games were made with the technology that we have now, we would definitely be seeing a lot more flourishes of colour. I think we can all agree that the value of the game to the gamer can't be evaluated in graphics alone. So we need to take a step back and put the 3D presets in the backseat. It's about how we engage with games in a simple way. There's a lot of pick-up and play titles that are available out there. And on the other side, there's also the emotional roots we get when we're immersed in the world of the game. I do agree with your point. However, I believe that 8-bit and 16-bit games really did help to influence a generation of game developers. Pixel art truly is timeless and will continue to grow with technology. This is evidenced by how popular pixel art games are still today. And they've really been growing back again in popularity since 2011. Possibly one of the best-selling games out there that is a pixel art game, is called Terraria. It was originally released in 2011 on consoles, PC and mobile. It's been supported by their developer Relogic for over nine years. And the final update called Journey's End was released literally last month. That's mad. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know they had a mobile variant. That's really interesting that they're going to those different platforms. Yes, it came out on mobile, I think, shortly after the launch. But it's the fact that the developer cared so much about this game that they kept giving it update after update after update. I really do feel like pixel art games are more supported by their developers and have a lot of love. Sort of just to contrast that, you were saying that pixel art games is responsible for inspiring a generation of game developers. I know that one of my favourite pixel art games is Stardew Valley. That's a personal favourite of mine and it was developed by one individual alone. I know he has a team now, but in terms of like... Who developed Terraria? Can you give us some insight in that? Who's Relogic? I don't really know much about Relogic, except that they have been an indie studio since the start. So they did one or two small other games like Pixel Piracy, but they're best known for Terraria, the revolutionary 2D sandbox adventure game is what they call it. But it, the fact that it's entertained uh, millions across PC, console and mobile platforms is absolutely amazing. And there's one other game out there that we know is sort of similar uh do you know what i'm talking about is it under the gungeon no it's stardew valley <laughs> stardew valley is not like terraria i don't remember planting my vegetables and a zombie attacking me because of the midnight red moon no no i, I think you, you're you're not really understanding where i'm coming from stardew valley showcases the success that an independent developer can have with a pixel art game the way that terraria has had success so the guy was called Concerned Ape. He created the game. He created this game over four years ago. He started it because he wanted to improve his skills as a developer in coding, and he was also inspired by another pixel game called Harvest Moon, and it was released between 1996 to 1997. 
So he ended up really focusing a lot of energy into this project. He ended up quitting his job. He worked an average of 10 hours a day, seven days a week for four years to create this beautiful masterpiece. And even after release, he didn't put any new features behind the paywall. He just continued to support the game with consistent free updates and one of them being a multiplayer option which allowed you to play with your friends the time and effort that developers really do put into pixel art games is simply amazing 10 hour days and seven day weeks is incredible and i think you can agree that the beauty of stardew valley really is the result of that hard work people have ended up putting hours upon hours into this game but you really have to credit his wife for supporting them during this time as well some indie developers can find a lot of success with pixel art games and i really do believe that concerned ape is one of them i think the game made over four million altogether and that's amazing especially considering the game only cost probably around i think at most 10 to 15 dollars depending on where you are in the world now he's got a fully fledged team hasn't he yes he is now starting to work on his next game but he is still providing free and consistent updates to Stardew Valley. But I think when you sort of think about Stardew Valley and Terraria, the reason why people enjoy that is because it's so simple to pick up and play. What's your preference? Do you like these sort of simplistic, relaxing games that pixel art developers are producing? Or do you prefer that massive, big-budget, immersive experience that a lot of people are fascinated by? Terraria can be very stressful at times, especially when you have things flying out of the sky <laughs> and you've got zombies coming out and attacking you. So I would argue that, yes, there are aspects of it like Stardew's forming, but I, I'd say Terraria can be a bit more stressful. It's not Resident Evil. It's not going to have some sort of dog jumping out of the window and eating you alive. like. No, but they have that there wee squish whenever you end up dying and you're like, oh no, and then you have a tombstone. You can't really die in Stardew Valley. You can only, uh, you can only pass out and then somebody will find you and bring you back to the house that sounds like my friday night <laughs> <laughs> moving it back to your question i i like to enjoy the simplistic games you can really really sink yourself into a massive um big budget game and you can spend hours upon hours upon hours of it but at the end of the day whenever you come back to these simplistic games you're doing the exact same things in it. You can go fishing, you can go farming, you can go into the mines, you can do racing. There, there's a wide, wide variety. It's just the very simplistic graphics that make it very enjoyable. I understand what you're saying there about how you enjoy the pick up and play games, and I can vouch for that. But would you not say that you're also guilty to buying these massive games that are so expensive and look beautiful, but don't play as well? So What's good under the hood? Why do we want to invest in these big budget games that don't really have a lot of character or depth to it? It depends on the game. I don't know what game you're playing that doesn't really have uh, much character development or depth, but personally, I believe that The Witcher 3 is a, is a brilliant tale. Fallout and 4. <laughs> yeah, well, F- Fallout, every game has its, its sense. But I understand, say, you buy a game that comes out at launch, you pay £50 for it, and it's just got loads of glitches, there's loads of bugs, and then, of course, you get the first day release patch, and then, of course, there's still stuff mucking up, and it's not really a full game that you've been sold on. And 
I think the price is really a key point there. So the main reason why these games are so expensive is because of the engines they're running on, the amount of time that goes into the game world. And I think that's really really where we can see the difference between the small pixel art games and these big massive budget AA titles. I've seen more heart in a small pixel art game than I have seen in massive big budget games. Some of them can be money grabs, but some of them can be great experiences at the end what do you you think are you more about the the small pixel art games or do you want to get more into the big budget games i'd be a complete liar if i didn't say i didn't have those expensive titles in my cupboard i think there's a lot of pressure as a gamer to sort of get involved in the mainstream and what's popular and i think that i would have a more educated experience when it comes to appreciating the product of development as opposed to paying for the production of it and i really wish that i could play more pixel art games and experience the sort of creative processes that are going into independent games i think we actually have a really really great example here and i don't think you realize it so on friday there uh, prior to this recording you actually bought pokemon sword but on the same day you also bought another game which was ac attorney so it's not a pixel art game though it's not a pixel art game i understand that and i'm kind of skewing it a wee bit here but just for the sake of the argument it still is you know it's not the big budget game that Pokemon is yet. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me which game you enjoyed more and which game you've played more hours in? Oh my god, right, okay. You put me in the hot seat. So on Friday I had a lot of pressure to get Pokemon Sword because someone else has Pokemon Shield. And I've played the game for the past couple of months and I do enjoy it. Um, I kind of feel like they infantilize you a little bit, but in terms of how it looks overall, it's beautiful. But I bought another game and it was the Ace Attorney Collection and it was £15 and it was a fraction of the price that I paid for the most recent Pokemon release. And I kind of enjoy Ace Attorney more and I know this is not Pixar games but it sort of boils it down to the sort of simple metric that makes the game fun. For example, I don't want something to look beautiful for me to be wowed. I want to get lost in the story. I want to get lost in the writing. I want to laugh at the jokes and I kind of feel like some simple games have more character and they engage me in a way that some big titles don't. So that's probably a good example. I think I would agree on that one. Yeah, so you have bought this Pokemon game and it's not actually a full experience. It's not your normal one. It's the first game without every single Pokemon in it and then you've just went to the e-store and you've picked up this title which has actually been on sale it's free games in one as well and you've played more hours than this massive massive game i think that really goes to show you that more heart has went into ace attorney than it has to the newest pokemon game i want to show our listeners that we all love pokemon as much as you do it's just sort of bringing it back to what you were saying earlier on some games are developing this paywall this dlc you know i'm absolutely hate games where you have to pay to experience more and a lot of the independent games that have been released in steam terraria dimension one stardew valley undertale hotland miami celeste and even enter the gungeon they're all fully packed they're complete they don't need any more added to it for you to enjoy the experience or to sort of pedal on the franchise yeah i understand the game devs care more about the game and the people playing it instead of the cash. It's not a cash grab. Yeah, down with the cash grabs. Get in the bin. 
Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, down with them. And um, one of the ones that kind of moved away from the cash grab was Shovel Knight. I remember that they promised that they were going to do, I think it was the a free DLC or something like that. But because they kept evolving, evolving, and evolving on it, they decided to turn it into a completely brand new game and experience. And I do believe, I'm not 100% too sure, that the people who paid for that extra DLC and that extra expansion, because it was a crowd starter, may get it for free. I'm not 100% too sure, but the developers of Shovel Knight have been absolutely amazing in growing that franchise, and they know exactly what people want. And fair play to them for making another game. Have you played Shovel Knight much? No, I haven't played it. It's a game that I really want to get into. It's the same with um, Celeste. It's absolutely amazing that we're going to talk about Celeste a wee bit later on. But one of the other games I have played is Enter the Gungeon. You do know that Enter the Gungeon is a demake? Do you know what that is? No. What is a demake? So, like, with the resurgence of pixel art, there's been a significant rise in demakes. You ask what demakes are, and I think it's the opposite of remakes, where you start to impair the visual quality or simplify the gaming experience. So you take these AAA titles and you simplify them and make them little chapters, like little sort of tributes that are pixel art. Another way of looking at this is whereby modern games are recreated to see how they appeared in an earlier era. So, I don't know, you could take some licensed films like Scott Pilgrim and they would put it in an arcade retro style so that it's more appealing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Enter the Gungeon, I think it was Team Fortress 2. It was kind of like a tribute to that. So I think it's really interesting how some people might think, yeah, people are just making a bit of nostalgia. That's all they're doing it for, that sort of retro factor. But it kind of brings it back to what you were saying, that the style stands on its own. And the rise of the DMX is a small little result of that. People are going, these are good games. Let's simplify it. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I do understand what you mean. I'm just kind of thinking about any games that I, that might be a, a demake. There's a few different examples. Um, for example, there's the Uncharted, which was recreated into a 2D action platformer. There was Dead Space, which was converted into a monochrome Game Boy classic. Another popular demake in the gaming industry is Gang Garrison 2, which is a pixelated 2D version of Team Fortress by Valve. Apologies, I got the wrong one there. <laughs> it's okay, you know, we get stuff wrong in our show notes every now and then. <laughs> Moving on from that, Shovel Knight is a really popular game and it stands on its own. It was a crowd-funded project. And I think it sort of brings us to the question that does the resurgence of pixel art games go hand-in-hand with the popularity of indie debuts? Is the reason why it's so popular to indie developers is because it's cheaper to make? Yes, they are cheap to make. Independent developers do not need to rely on the need for a massive game engine with 3D models. They're able to express their art in the forms that they like by using pixel art. As a developer, I believe it's easy to create code, but if I were to make a game, I would much rather design and mold it using pixel art, as I don't have the hardware to run such an intensive game engine like the cinema, which is used in Horizon Zero Dawn and Death Stranding. But putting the question back to you, do you believe that there are any other reason why developers would be inclined to use pixel art? In their games? I think indie devs do so much more. They make it an accessible medium to transform different elements of 2D gaming. We've all heard the saying, don't fix what isn't broken right. Well, turn it on its head because indie devs have been able to break away from the hardware-centric necessity of the 80s and they brought pixel art gaming forward and this is probably due to their unceasing passion for pixel art. 
I was doing some really interesting research and I found that beyond it just being a cheap way of producing games, some have beat their chest and shouted, it's a sucker punch to the nostalgia fields. I'd be in the camp to say where it's cool, it's countercultural. Pixel artists are the punks of modern gaming and being rebel sexy, Gen Z and millennials would eat that right up and that's probably one of the reasons why indie dev games are so popular. Do you believe that 2D games are given the same level of respect as their 3D counterparts? I think we've finally gotten past that mental barrier of cheap, small experiences that we usually affiliate with Pixar games. And now there's these big 2D indie games that are going for as high as 20 to 30 pounds, maybe being a stretch. And I think that really speaks to the level of acceptance that the audience have had for 2D titles. And it's just going to lead to newer and bigger things. The higher prices for a lot of these experiences just show the audience treat them as any other game on the market. It really has replaced the middle tier price range of games that are far cry from the past. I don't know if you remember buying a PS2 game for £30. Not everybody is able to fork out £50 to £60 for a new game. It just burns the pockets sometimes. I do believe that there's a lot of respect for pixel art games in the industry. At the Video Game Awards in 2018, a pixel art game which we mentioned earlier celeste was nominated for over four categories which doesn't normally happen so let me just do a quick run through of the highest games with multiple nominations so we had god of war and red dead redemption 2 with eight nominations we have marvel's spider-man with seven nominations and then we have fortnite assassin's creed odyssey and celeste with four nominations so that's a pixel art game that has been nominated four times and it's also won two awards in the same night. It was one of the four games that won multiple awards. And that it's just unheard of. The price tag might be lower on the game, but I feel that the experiences are on par with a AAA game. Do you think the experience pays for itself or you have to pay for the experience? I feel like the experience pays for itself. I think you get a lot more value for money with independent games, such as Stardew Valley. So you put in numerous hours, however, you've paid a low price for it and you'll have paid maybe 10 to $15, but you'll put in 300 hours. That experience really speaks for itself. My conclusion is that 8-bit games were there at the very beginning of the gaming industry and they'll be around for years to come. As the hardware evolved, so did the concept of 8-bit games, which evolved into the pixel art games that we know and love today. I believe that developers put so much of their heart into these games, and this is shown by how popular they are today. I believe that over the next decade, the best pixel art games are yet to come. Now we're going to move into our Game of the Week showdown. And welcome to the Game of the Week Showdown. The rules of the showdown are simple. Both players pick a game they support that fit the bill for a specific theme for this week. Both will then battle against one another in an animated debate to see which game comes out on top. The three categories to focus on are plot, mechanics, unique appeal. The winner picks the theme for the week and takes home the championship title for that week. Games used once may never be used again in upcoming showdowns. This week's theme detective games. So you really hit me hard last week whenever you said detective games because I sat there panicking going what detective games have I played and I thought about saying The Vanishing of Ethan Carter but I have played two other detective games. I think I can almost guess what they are just from the top of my head. Okay what are they? The first would probably be L.A. Noir, and the second 
Detective Pikachu? Yes, you are correct. But in this case, we haven't picked the same one, have we? I've picked Detective Pikachu. <laughs> okay, that's good. I've picked Eleanor. So I'm going to get into... Go for it. Knock me out. So, But let me hit you with some facts beforehand. Eleanor was released for, wait for it, the PS3, the Xbox 360, PC, PS4, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switched. It was released in 2011 and then remastered and re-released in 2017. It was also has a VR game, but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> we don't talk about that. I thought VR gaming was a good thing. That's what we discussed in our last episode. I know it is good, but I'm not going to talk about the VR aspect of this game oh, okay. in, in that part since I have never played it. So, set within Los Angeles in 1947, the game follows the story of Los Angeles Police Department, LAPD, Detective Cole Phillips, who solves a range of cases across five divisions, but soon finds his personal life falling into turmoil when he becomes involved in a particular case that ties into his past as a member of the US Marines during World War II. Storyline also briefly follows Jack Kelso, a member of Phillips' unit, in the war. It's got very dark. Yeah, but it is a good game. Yeah, like, I can't really argue. I kind of feel like at the start, it takes a bit of time to get into. Like, you sort of build up your ranks. But I'm not here to build you up. I'm here to pull you down. I don't like the detective in it because he cheated. I vaguely remember it. Yeah, yeah he got very caught up in the whole sleuthing that he, he sort of forgot he was a good family man. And that really broke my heart. I actually hated him after that. It sounds really bad, but I was playing it and I loved the game. I loved every aspect of it, except that one movie scene. It feels like you're more on my side here, so why don't you tell me about Detective Pikachu? <laughs> <laughs> it's Well, it's hard. Eleanor is a good game. It stands on its own. It's really dark. It's really sinister. Um, and it does. it's not really shy. And my game's going to pale in comparison. Mine's going to be colourful and fluffy and everything that you don't expect in a detective game. But here we go. So the plot is, Ace Detective Harry Goodman goes mysteriously missing and this prompts his 21-year-old son, Tim, to find out what happened. So in aiding the investigation, Harry's former Pokemon partner, the wise-cracking and adorable Detective Pikachu, helps him out. Finding that they are uniquely equipped to work together, Tim is the only human who can actually talk to Pikachu and they join forces to unravel the tangled mystery. So they chase clues together through Rhyme City, a sprawling and modern metropolis where humans and Pokemon live side by side in a really realistic live action world. They encounter a diverse cast of Pokemon characters and they uncover a shocking plot that could destroy this peaceful coexistence, therefore threading the whole Pokemon universe. Dun dun dun. So it got a bit dark there at the end. Mm, yeah, I know. Hmm. I don't know if I want to give you the plot. Why? Uh, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll give you plot to start off with. You're just being kind because you don't want to break my little fragile detective Pikachu heart. No, I'll give him the cuteness. I suppose it's a, it's a more heartwarming story in terms of, you know, there's more mystery behind it. Whereas I'd say LNOR, you're kind of, you're building up through the ranks or from the very start, there's a mystery around uh, Detective Pikachu. And that there's why I, I will give you the first plot. So I think maybe the next part is the game mechanics. So what, what game mechanics has Detective Pikachu got? 
Okay, I think that none of the marketing for the game really bothered to mention the one aspect of the entire game that elevates it beyond what some might consider a kid-focused adventure game, and that is the Detective Pikachu button. You know what I mean, right? Situated on the left-hand side of the touchscreen at all times is a little tiny, whiny little small picture of Detective Pikachu, and whenever you press it, it triggers a small cutscene with the electric mouse being wisecracking and he tells you something completely unnecessary. He could be sitting sitting coffee, running because he's an old man. It's just there's so many different elements of it that's really funny. And sometimes he'll whip out his magnifying glass from nowhere and just look for clues. Sometimes he'll try and do a quick attack, but he's too fat to run. <laughs> How many coffees does he actually drink in the game? Do you know that? Oh my God, is this such a question? Um, yes. <laughs> I think like 20, I don't know. There's a lot. Sometimes he'll just like tell you about coffee randomly. Um, he flippantly flip loves coffee. <laughs> Is there any other game mechanics apart from the Detective Pikachu button? I'm not going to lie. I think... No, <laughs> no, there's not as much as that. There, like, it is great in terms of free room and that sort of 3D landscape that you don't really get often, but it's nothing uniquely different to what you would get in any other recent Pokemon game. The only thing different is probably the style. It's a bit more hyper-realistic, which I think is pretty cool. So I'm going to blow you out of the water now. So the actual game mechanics for L.A. Noir. So players must investigate crime scenes for clues, follow up leads and interrogate suspects. The player's success at these activities will impact how much of each case's story is then revealed. So there's an open world design that lets players freely roam about LA in the open landscape and its world is navigated either on foot or by vehicle and the story is centered on the case sequences so many missions involve shooting, driving gameplay and it's played through a third person perspective. So LA Noir has contains like elements found in action adventure games side missions, branching storylines. The game uses licensed music as well, which has an in-game radio and it has an original score. Plus, um, I guess this is kind of like a game mechanic, uh, kind of a bit more appeal, but um, the game is notable for the first ever game to use what new for its time uh, motion scan technology developed by Depth Analyst. The motion scan had used 32 surrounding characters to capture actors' facial expressions from every angle. So this technology was central in the game's interrogation mechanic. So the player was required to use the suspect's reactions to question whether and judge whether they are lying or not. Yeah, I was going to say about that that was my favourite part. You basically had to tell the liars apart and you had to read them. I thought that was amazing. It was great, but looking back in 2011, it was very hard to see, but in the re-release, it's a lot, lot nicer, and it looks better. Plus, um, for the game of this time that was released in 2011, having over 20 hours of voice work recorded for the game was amazing back in the day. 2011? Is it that old? Do you know what? (laughs) It's really interesting, because L.A. Noir is the game I played and got you into, and you bought me Detective Pikachu and I got into it. So we've just changed each other's perspectives really, haven't we? Yeah, well, I think Detective Pikachu is a good game, but I think Elena War is going to take this round. Hmm, we'll see in the unique appeal. What's interesting about Detective Pikachu as a game, apart from the amount of current effort that's been put into it, because it's such a unique idea, is the way it sort of visualises it and Pokemon in a realistic fashion. 
In the world of the mainland games, the various towns and cities have always been shown to be quite ordinary, and it's only the addition of Pokemon that usually makes them unusual. That's exactly how Rhyme City is portrayed. As you kind of wander around the streets of what seems to be an ordinary city, you come across a Charizard that, due to the game's central conspiracy of the evil R, he's gone crazy, but not crazy enough because the game's age rating is actually only three. So please don't call me the detective of kindergarten because I'm trying my best here, okay? The third-person viewpoint and surprisingly good graphics give it a hint of what a more technologically advanced Pokemon game could look like. And it's really alienating, but also kind of fascinating. And I think that's kind of unique in its own way. But this is neither an action game or a role player. And if it's close to anything, it's probably more like the investigative sequences of Ace Attorney. So probably a little bit more basic than what you would get in L.I. Noir. Um, in terms of gameplay, most of your game is spent interviewing witnesses. Pikachu translates for any Pokemon you need to talk to and you just collect clues. Once you have the information, you then have to put together your hypothesis and you have to match it to the evidence. It'll be interesting to see whenever this sequel to Detective Pikachu comes out for Nintendo Switch. I know you were saying that uh, it has an age rating and it's, it's very, very low, but the actual movie kind of portrayed it a bit differently. So I'm wondering if maybe whenever the sequel comes out, it will be different, but only time will tell. So I'm going to get into the unique appeal of LNOR. So this game was incredibly unique whenever it was released in 2011. Many critics called it a masterpiece and some even compared it to an AMC television series that slowly builds and hooks in viewers. Instead of a traditional rockstar game, you're actually the good guy in this. You're trying to stop the bad guys. And the fact that this game was re-released six years later for modern consoles and did amazingly in sales, it kind of speaks for itself. Eleanor is also a 2012 BAFTA video game award winner and was the fastest selling new intellectual property in the UK in 2011 and it held that record for over three years before it was taken over by uh, Watch Dogs, I believe. Okay, okay. I think I'm going to throw in the gauntlet. I think you may have won the Game of the Week showdown this week. Yes, after uh, losing last week, I've come back stronger this week but next week shall be interesting i have picked a topic which i think we both are familiar on next week's topic licensed games for the ps1 like what you hear so far make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now this podcast is made possible by listeners like you thank you very much for all your support now back to the show and now it is the part of the show where we answer your questions if you have any questions, please send them in to askplayer2pod at gmail.com. We've had a few lovely people email into the show this week. The first email we received was from Sandy. Have you ever had a really bad experience with pre-owned games or trading in? Yeah, I actually had a really bad experience with a pre-owned game I purchased in Spain. I spoke to the shopkeeper and I explained that I was English and I would really like if the Rugrats game that I was going to buy for the Game Boy Advance would be in English. And I asked him, was there language options? And he said, yeah. And I was very, very young at the time. I must have been like, I don't know, 12. And I purchased it and I brought it home and I was so, so excited. Ripped it in the box, stuck it in my Game Boy Advance. And of course it was Spanish. <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, you don't realize how much I saved up my pocket money for that. Like a lot of my vacation allowance went into that. Other than that, I haven't really had too many bad experiences with buying 
pre-owned games. Usually they're really good. I have had some bad experience trading in games though. Like I remember when I traded in all my PS2 games and my Guitar Hero controller and the amount of money I got for it was really, really poor. I think I got like something like 20 quid and it was like 10 games. I don't really think I've ever had a bad experience of pre-owned games apart from one. So it was whenever I bought Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban for the PS2. So I had two copies of this game. My first copy which I bought was not pre-owned and I somehow got a scratch on it and it didn't work. So I went out and got a second copy which worked well for two days and then I got the same issue. So that was probably my really bad experience in terms of buying pre-owned games. However, buying pre-owned items such as game console and amiibos, I don't think we've had any issues apart from maybe it being really dirty, which we have then been able to clean up. So the two examples are we got like a, a yarn Yoshi and it had ink on it and we were able to take the ink from the foot out. And the second one was we bought an N64 Pikachu that was really dull and faded and we spent, I think it was about two hours cleaning it up and making it shine again. So we took like, we picks and took all the, the dirt and stuff on the off the controller and it looked really well when it was done. Yeah, like I'm not going to fault it too much. Like when you buy things pre-owned, there's obviously going to be a wipe down that the shop do, but it's not going to be an expert job. I think we can all like empathize with that. I personally really enjoy cleaning it up because I felt like it was just bringing it back and reviving it to its final form, as one could say. But the way it worked was perfect. I'm going to say something that's quite controversial now, but I think the best trading I ever made was whenever I traded in my Wii for an Xbox 360 in three weeks. <laughs> I didn't like the Wii. Yeah, you, you should have given it some time because that the Wii was amazing. But that that's a conversation for another day. And if you have any opinions on that, then please hit us up on social media <laughs> and let us know. This next question comes from Joel. What do you think about the ridiculous size of the latest Call of Duty game, Modern Warfare Warzone? The game started with approximately over 100 gigabytes download. And since then, every update has been a minimum of 30 gigabytes. For people without a 2TB hard drive on PC, or those like myself with the 1TB Xbox One, this is not sustainable, and the storage is very quickly running out. What do you think? Do the games companies need to stop adding so much in detail? Or does the gaming hardware need to advance to cope? In our discussion earlier, we talked about big budget games using massive game engines, and unfortunately the storage situation is a result of this. Some games companies purposely put a small hard drive in so it forces you to buy the more expensive version. A cheap alternative would be to buy an external hard drive, but what, what you would expect for paying so much for the hardware that it would at least have the storage. With the gaming software constantly evolving, I believe that we're going to see more detail in games this size. However, companies need to include better storage. Maybe if they adopted what the Nintendo Switch has, where you can put a micro SD card in to increase storage. They could possibly allow you to put an internal 2TB hard drive in. That would solve the issue, but I hope in future generations the new Xbox and PS5 will address this issue, but it's most unlikely. I think it's really interesting what you're saying there and your take on how we need to adapt hardware to match the sort of games that are being produced. Just to put things into context, earlier this week, Call of Duty Modern Warfare had released an update that required an approximate 15 gigabytes download for console players. And that update with the patch of 1.2, which is now available, there's also another mandatory 12 gigabytes download, and there's also a secondary 18 gigabytes download 
that is required in order to access some of the game's offerings. I think we also need to go back to the sort of question that Joel was talking about. Why does Warzone require so much memory? So it requires so much memory because of the massive size of the map and the amount of details that goes into it. But they're constantly changing the map as well. They're trying to spice things up, as you'd say. But say if we compare this to other Battle Royale games, maybe it's the graphics that are it's so realistic, you know, and the cosmetics that are being added to, maybe that's the reason why it is so big. I completely understand what you're saying there about there being loads of detail and content in the game. I think you also need to realise Warzone also shares progression with Modern Warfare and every weapon and character asset also needs to work within Warzone. And therefore, the pipeline of production really isn't perfect. So that's why there's a mountain of data that needs to be shipped. We have an email in from John. He always believes that scary moments in non-horror video games are more effective than in actual horror games. Do you have a favourite scary moment from a non-horror game? Yeah, I actually do, and there are two childhood games. The first game that scared me so much was Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Whenever you're the younger Link and you're going through the Hyrule field and there is the skeleton boys that used to pop up, I used to scream. That used to scar me so much. And then whenever you're the older Link and you're in Hyrule Castle and all the zombies are walking around and they jump on you and they go, yeah, that was one of the scariest ones. And that's not a horror-based game. That's just, you know, a fantasy-based game. And then another game that really scared me was whenever you were playing Pokemon and you're in the ghost tower and you're walking around. yeah. Yeah, the music was so creepy. And used to have them walking around and they're talking to like all their dead relatives and it was really spooky. I don't know if they would be considered like the equivalent of jump scares, but they really made me just feel really uncomfortable and frightened me very, very much. What about you? So I would be the same with Orcarina of Time. I was scared of them. I used to run past the zombies all the time and I used to do the wee roll to get past them quickly. <laughs> now looking back at it, I'm watching Zelda speedrun videos. I know how to get past them. I know how to deal with them now, thank God. You got over that trauma, uh, did you? Yeah, I was going to... St- we were kind of talking about this beforehand. The question that I said about Telltale's Walking Dead, I know it's not a horror game. Well, it could be described as a horror game. It's technically... Uh, it's, a, it's a form of horror game. But the jump scares in that really got me with the zombies. But the one that I remember, I can't remember the name of the enemy, but they used to be, it was in Borderlands and they were in lockers. And what happened is you used to go along and you're loot, 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 loot. And this enemy would jump out of nowhere and scare the crap out of you. I remember me and a friend of mine, Cal, were playing and he knew that it was coming. I didn't. And every single time that happened, I one oh and they turned around and you just kept laughing at me it was so so funny it's one of the one of the funniest moments in gaming for me but it was also one of the scariest as well and our last question comes in from sharon and this is funny because uh, we talked about this earlier do you think detective pikachu could have gone further could there have been hard mode and could the game have been longer i'll let you answer this nicole oh you're just putting me in the bin aren't you <laughs> you won and now you're just throwing me to the dogs. No, I'm only joking. Um, I really think that Detective Pikachu could have been longer, to be honest with you. I don't think it should have been harder. I don't know if I'm just a really, really bad detective, but I actually thought it was quite tough and I may have had to walk, look up the odd walkthrough. I know they say that it's on the tin. You can't really fail, but I failed a few times 
And <laughs> I think it really could have been longer. There was a lot more potential. There could have been a lot more Pokemon, I think, that should have been invited into the game. And we could have enriched Rhyme City a little bit further. I know they did that in the movie and they had a lot of budget and a lot of leeway to do it. But you kind of have to give Detective Pikachu a bit more credit because it was quite an out there concept to begin with. And I think they did well with what they had. And I would like to see a second Detective Pikachu game. I don't know about you. I think it'd become a series if it could. Well, that's the best thing about it is that I feel like Detective Pikachu could have been held back by the horror that was on being the 3DS. And for example, they have came out and they said they actually are going to do another Detective Pikachu. It's going to be coming out to the Switch. So we're going to hopefully see a lot more improvements. We're going to see more improvements to it. Hey, we're going to see not that many improvements, uh, eh? more Pokemon, we're going to see maybe more dialogue, we're going to see that expansion of Rhyme City, uh, but I remember you playing the game, I haven't really played through it, so I can't really speak about it, but I, from what I know, it could have been longer, and I think it could have been a hard mode, or there could have been a new game plus, or something like that. Yeah, it could have had a few <laughs> different difficulties, but with an H3 branding, you have to sort of give the benefit of the doubt that it's only for a particular audience. Yeah, so let's hope that the next Detective Pikachu will be uh, rated PG. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Enter Player 2. Make sure to visit us on all our social medias. Links to our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram can be found in the link description. Please also be sure to subscribe and you will never miss a show. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a rating and a review. Plug in and join us again at Enter Player 2. We'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining. Goodbye. Bye.